Good morning. I would invite you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, to turn to Malachi chapter 3. Go to Matthew and then flip back a page or so. Malachi chapter 3. And we'll be reading uh, starting in verse 1 through verse 4. Malachi chapter 3. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in, as in the former years. This is uh, so far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this uh, time to to consider your word, Lord, and, and to hear from you, I, I do ask that you would help us by your spirit, that these words would, um, that we would receive them, God, that we would be able to hear and see what you have for us, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, and I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable this morning in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, I hope you all had a great time, Uh, but I do want to ask you this question and have us consider it for a moment. Was Christmas worth the wait for you? Was it worth the wait? Uh, I would say, you know, for me and my family, it certainly was. You know, we had our advent calendar and the kids were getting more and more excited. And uh, yesterday was a sweet time to, uh, you know, sing joy to the world, to read through the Christmas story, to have a sweet time with our family, which is going to continue even into today. But maybe for some of you, you know, there was something specific you were waiting for. Uh, maybe just in light of all the, you know, the busyness of life and with the added complications of COVID, maybe you were just finally waiting for a day to spend with your family and have a sweet time together. Maybe for some of you kids, maybe there was a specific present that you were just waiting and waiting for to be under the tree when you woke up yesterday. Um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that or something we can all agree on is that all of us in general hate waiting. We don't like waiting. You know, and, and as for someone, you know, speaking for myself, as someone who's worked in uh, food and in retail most of my adult life, I can attest to the fact that most people simply don't like waiting. And I think, you know, uh, uh, our culture and uh, our, uh, you know, technology and the, just the things around us kind of exacerbate this issue, this, this fact that we just don't like to wait. You know, uh, this is, I think, part of the reason why it seems to me that, you know, when you go to a store, it seems like every year that the Christmas section pops up earlier and earlier. Uh, you know, this is, I think, the reason why you can now get a pumpkin spice latte in August when it's 95 degrees outside. You know, and I even remember when I was a kid, I remember you had to wait till Black Friday for the radio stations to start playing all the Christmas songs. But now, you know, you can open up Spotify and if you really need it, you can play Mariah Carey in July if you just need some Christmas spirit. You know, and, and uh, you know, waiting, I think we can all agree, and in some sense, you know, waiting is, it's a good thing. You know, and this is why even if you look at you know, church history that we've always, or, or often uh, church traditions and Christian traditions have had this season of Advent where we're anticipating Christ, we're getting our hearts ready, we're, we're preparing for this celebration of Christ. And, you know, we have uh, expressions like, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, or, you know, the longer you wait, the sweeter 
it tastes. But even when we're waiting for the right things, we're waiting for you know, the, the arrival of a loved one, we're waiting for the Christmas season, you know, even when uh, we are waiting for those things, eventually we all have experienced that, you know, that excitement fades and that, that posture that we have turns from something positive, something exciting and wonderful, uh, oftentimes to something negative, something you know, uh, hurtful or sad. Uh, and more than just the, you know, the little frustrations of life, waiting in line, waiting uh, to pick something up, you know, or just the, the regular waiting that comes with the changing of the seasons, you know, often some of the, the deepest pains and the deepest uh, hurts in our life come as the result of waiting. And this is true oftentimes even in the Christmas season. You know, as one, uh, one writer, she's reflecting on, you know, the kind of the, the culture of Christmas and, you know, kind of the, the, the stereotypes of Christmas. She says this, she says, I spent last Christmas wondering if this would be the year that God would give my husband and me a baby. He didn't. And I can't help hoping that by this time next year, we will be a family of three. All the feel-good Christmas movies enhance this hope of a happy reconciliation right in time for Christmas. The lonely are set in families and the long lost always make it home on time. But so often in the real world, Christmas comes and Christmas goes without fulfilling the longings of our hearts. And we all, I think, know, you know, different times in our life that waiting is very, very difficult at times. Ultimately, it can lead to uh, just giving up, you know, losing interest, moving on to something else. And oftentimes it can lead to despair. Uh, Langston Hughes in his famous poem, Harlem, he considers this question of, you know, uh, this idea of waiting and, and what happens as we continue to wait for something and something is before us and we haven't yet uh, received it or, or arrived there. He says, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? And, you know, in, in various ways, we are all waiting for something. It's, uh, you know, maybe different things, but we're all waiting for something to happen in our life. Maybe, you know, you're, maybe you're waiting for the one to come along. Maybe you're waiting to have kids. Maybe you're waiting for kids to move out of the house. Uh, maybe you're waiting for gainful employment, waiting to, you know, finally arrive at a professional level, waiting for retirement, or just, you know, simply waiting for this hard season of your life to come to an end. And in our text this morning, in Malachi 3, as we've read, we find a people who have grown tired uh, of waiting. Now, the prophet Malachi, this is the, you know, as, we, as I, we said earlier, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, we see that God, earlier in the book, God has brought his people back from their exile. But, you know, despite this fact, things weren't quite what they were expecting them to be. They still, you know, uh, in this time, they didn't have any, you know, real power or real influence on the world stage. They were kind of this backwater little uh, nation uh, in Israel, and they were longing. They were still longing for this promised coming day of the Lord. But as they were waiting and waiting, as the years went by, this hope that the Lord would ret- return just began to grow dimmer and dimmer. You know, and so we see throughout the first couple chapters of Malachi, we see that the people's love for God had began to grow cold. Their worship was beginning to become lacking. We see, you know, earlier that they're sacrificing lame animals. They were, in many ways, simply going through the motions of their religion. And then, you know, essentially they were asking the question at this point through their behavior, through their words, you know, what's the point? What is the point of us continuing to wait? And so Malachi here is painting for us a picture of a church without much glory, uh, they're losing motivation to remain faithful. They're wondering, uh, ultimately, when this Messiah would come and would finally make all things right. 
And they begin to take this frustration, this, uh, you know, this impatience out on God himself. And so we see just before our text this morning at the end of chapter 2, the, uh, this passage is framed by this question as the people are kind of arguing with God. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, the people ask this question, where is the God of justice? And in this question, as they're asking, where is the God of justice? Uh, it implies two things uh, from their point of view about God. They're, they're implying something, either that God has just simply changed his character. He's no longer a God of justice. He doesn't care about enacting justice anymore. Or simply that, you know, where is this God of justice? They're saying, where is God? Maybe God is, you know, just out of the picture. Maybe God doesn't even exist. Maybe he's not real at all. And so, you know, basically either the people are saying either God is not willing to come or God is not able to come. And so it's in the midst of this questioning, you know, where is God? It's in the midst, in the midst of this that God gives us this prophetic response. He tells the people where he is. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And so this prophecy in verses 1 through 4, uh, it, we're introduced to this character, my messenger. God tells his people that before he brings about this day of judgment that they're waiting for, you know, they're waiting for the God of justice, or you could also say the God of judgment. Before this God of judgment comes, he's going to send a messenger. And this, you know, my messenger, this, this title is actually a play on Malachi's own name because Malachi's name literally means my messenger. And so Malachi is saying, Malachi is coming. But unlike, you know, the other prophets, unlike prophets who would come and go for a specific generation and then die and then another prophet would take their place, uh, God is promising this final, this ultimate messenger. And this, you know, this uh, idea of a messenger coming, this kind of forerunner. It's not Malachi's original idea. It's not something God had just announced here. It's actually something we see earlier in the prophets, like in the, in the book of uh, Isaiah, that before the, this day of the Lord would come, before the Messiah would come, there's going to be this forerunner, this one who's going to prepare the way, who's going to announce and proclaim and make, you know, make the, the mountains flat and prepare everything for his arrival. And then after this messenger that God foretells, we are introduced to another character, he continues on in verse 1, he says, And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. And so this character we see is given this twofold description. On the one hand, Malachi says he is the Lord who is coming to his temple, and also we see he is the messenger of the covenant. And this language would have, you know, the people would have immediately knew that this person that is being described here is the Messiah. This is the one whom they're waiting for. And we know that this is the person that they're waiting for because the text even says that he is the, the Lord whom you seek, whom you are seeking, and the messenger whom you desire. And so in this description of the Messiah we see, not only is God just describing what he's going to be like, God is implicitly answering the question that we've just seen at the end of verse 2, this question of where is the God of justice? You know, essentially, when, is, when will God send this one who will enact justice? And God tells them, I'm coming. You know, I'm going to send him to you. I haven't forgotten about you. And more than this, more than just the fact that he's acknowledging this concern, he's telling them that it, it is still happening, he's describing the Messiah as righteous, this one who cares, who truly cares about justice. He is the Lord who's going to sit on his throne, who's going to sit and rule over his people, who's going to enact justice, who's going to be the righteous king. But he's also, we see, he's the covenant messenger. He's the one who keeps covenant faithfulness. He is the messenger, or you could say he is the mediator of this covenant between God and man. He's the one who is both just to bring about judgment, 
but he's also the faithful one who keeps the covenant promises that God has made to his people. And this is, you know, truly it's good news for his people, or at least it should be, right? In one sense, it is this great news that the Messiah is coming. He's going to sit on his throne. He's going to bring to fruition all the promises that God's made to the forefathers. And while, you know, this should be good news, and while in some sense it is, God then goes on to ask this ominous uh, question to the people. He says, um, you know, when, when this, this Messiah comes, when this one comes, he says, who can endure? Who can stand? When he comes, who can endure his coming? And this, you know, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer to who can stand is nobody can stand. God is saying that you cannot stand. You are not ready to stand before this one. And in, you know, in one way, God is asking the people, do you, know, do you really know what you're asking for? Do you know what you're getting yourselves into? Because for, you know, for the people, they think that the day of the Lord is a good thing for them. They think this is it's this great day when all the wrongs will be made right, when they will finally have their uh, place in the world, when you know, they will get what they've been hoping for. But, uh, and the irony is that you know, the people think that this delay, that this thing that they're waiting for, that the delay is because of some deficiency, some fault, uh, some unfaithfulness on God's part. But God is telling them the reason for his delay of judgment is not because of something wrong with him, but it's because of something in the people themselves. God is you know, essentially saying, the delay of my judgment is because I need to get you ready first. It is because God is a God of justice that he cannot come. If God were to come now, it would only mean condemnation and judgment for his people. And so God goes on to describe, you know, he's, he says, this is what the Messiah is going to be. He's going to be the Lord on his throne. He's going to be this, uh, this one who, you know, this messenger of the covenant. But then he describes what this Messiah is going to do when he comes. He describes him first as this refiner, this one who's going to purify uh, metal. And then he describes him as a laundry man, a man who's going to come and, and wash the garments of these people. And, you know, these, uh, these metaphors are pretty straightforward. I think we kind of get what they mean, you know, fire. This idea that when the Messiah comes, he's going to you know, remove by fire this uh, you know, impurity from a metal. He's going to make it pure. And then the second illustration of this, this laundry man, uh, you know, that he's going to wash with soap. He's going to get the garments clean. But you know, even this word soap doesn't really get quite at what it's uh, talking about. It's really more of this idea of lye or bleach that you know, it's this deep, deep purifi- uh, purifying process. This fire that's going to burn out impurities and this bleach, this lye that's going to get rid of all the imperfections and all the dirt and all the uh, marks and blemishes on their clothing. So in order, we see for God's judgment to be a blessing for his people, he has to purify them first. He has to cleanse them uh, from their sin. And then even in the, in the Hebrew, Malachi, uh, there's, there's this word play between the word covenant in verse 1 and soap in verse 2. They're uh, very similar words. And essentially, you know, uh, he's kind of making this pun that God is going to bring about this covenant washing for his people. This, you know, this covenant cleansing, um, which really this idea of cleansing is, is part of the new covenant promise that we see throughout uh, the prophets. This idea that when, when the Messiah comes, that he's going to purify and cleanse his people, that, you know, as we see elsewhere, that he's going to bring uh, or give them a new heart. He's going to put a new spirit within them. He's going to wipe away their sins, that he's going to forgive them of their iniquities and remember their former sins no more. This is part of what the people had been promised. And, you know, of all the things in this life, perhaps this is one of the ones that we feel uh, most acutely, this you know, longing for our sin to be dealt with, this longing for the guilt and shame of our sin to be taken care of. This is what God is pointing to, that he's going to send his Messiah, and this Messiah is going to take care of our sin. 
And specifically in our text this morning, uh, Malachi focuses, or, or God through the mouth of Malachi, focuses on the Levites. He says that he's going to purify the Levitical priesthood. And uh, you know, given the context of what he's writing, uh, or in, in the context which he's writing, it makes sense that since the Levites, Levites were the ones who were offering sacrifices, and in particular the ones who have grown negligent in their offering of sacrifices, in their duties as priests, in their you know, making a covering for the people's sins. God is saying, I'm going to cleanse the priesthood. And then from there we see, you know, as the priesthood is cleansed, it's going to spread. It's going to go you know, uh, cleansing all of Jerusalem and then finally all of God's people in Judah. And then finally, God tells the people the result of this covenant washing. He says that this will lead to proper worship. The people will rejoice in the Lord. There'll be restored fellowship finally with the Lord and uh, the Lord will be able to dwell among his people. And then finally, then and only then, after this serious cleansing, this deep purification uh, in verses 3 and 4, then finally in verse 5, God says that he will come in judgment. So God is saying, only after I've taken care of you, only after I've made you ready, then and only then will I come to judge. And if you, you, know, you don't have to, but if you were to turn forward a page or so, you'll see, uh, as we said, that Malachi, you know, after this, there's probably a blank page in your Bible, and then the New Testament, this is, uh, both, you know, as it's printed, but also historically, this is the last word. Malachi is the last word that God gives to his people for over 400 years. This is the last thing that God says, this final promise that, you know, the next thing that they are to look forward to is this forerunner, this messenger, who's going to come and who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And then, then the Messiah will come. And then after this 400 years of silence, the very next words we hear, the very next words that God speaks historically are in Luke 1, in the, the, uh, the story of Zechariah. As Zechariah, he's, you know, this Levitical priest, nonetheless, he's He's going to the temple to make, uh, you know, to, to do his, um, you know, the, the rituals of the, of the temple. It's his, it's his turn finally to go into the temple. Um, and then as he's in the temple, this angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, who's, um, you know, advanced in years and who hasn't ever been able to bear a child, he gives them this promise that they're going to have a son. And as we all know, this son will grow up to be John the Baptist. And in describing what this son will do, and in describing uh, his job description, the angel actually quotes from the end of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, describing what he's going to do. And he says, the angel says to Zechariah, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then Zechariah, you know, he has a, a few months to ponder over this as he's, he's made mute and he can't speak. So he gets to, you know, he's kind of alone with his thoughts. And um, finally, after months and months of thinking and making sense of all this, he gives this beautiful uh, prophetic song, the song of Zechariah uh, in Luke chapter 1. And he says this about John the Baptist. He says, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so, you know, note what, note what Zechariah is picking up on here. He, you know, he's connecting the dots. He sees that his son will be this, uh, this one that, Zach, or that Malachi had been prophesying about. He recognizes that John is that messenger that was promised. And so Zechariah says that, you know, he will prepare uh, the way of the Lord by bringing about the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sin. So he understands this, pro this prophetic word that we see in Malachi 3, that 
that this one is going to come and he's going to proclaim the, the, the Messiah, the one who's going to deal with sin, who's going to forgive sins. And this is exactly what John does throughout his ministry. He, you know, in preparing a way for the Lord, he's really preparing a people for the Lord. He is telling them to repent. He's telling them that the Messiah is coming. And he even uses this imagery of fire that the, when this one comes, he's going to you know, come with fire. It's going to be this, um, this you know, judgment for sin. And he's telling the people to get ready. And so if you know, John the Baptist is that messenger, that one, that forerunner, then you know, Christ, obviously, we know, is the one, is the Messiah who he is proclaiming. And if Christ is that one and he's described as this purifying uh, agent, this one who purifies, this one who cleanses, how exactly did Christ do this? Well, we see in Malachi that the Messiah who is promised is not only the one who cleanses, he's not only the purifier of, uh, with fire, he's not only the, the laundry man, but he's also the cleansing agent. He's the, the purifying fire itself. He's not just the washer, he's the cleansing soap itself. And if you want to use the language of the, you know, the Levitical sacrificial system, he's not only the, the priest who comes to make a right sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice itself. You know, who, who cleanses sins by his own blood. And this is exactly what John the Baptist describes him as. As Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Christ comes, we know, as that one, that one who comes to, to purify us, the one who comes to make us ready. And he does this how? He does this by being judged himself, by bearing that judgment, by bearing that penalty for sins, that we deserve. And this is why Paul, as he's reflecting on what Christ did, he says this in, in the letter uh, in Titus. He says uh, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And this is, you know, this is in one sense what we celebrated yesterday, that Christ came in order to bring about what was promised in Malachi 3, to be this one who could be a proper sacrifice, this one who could be a proper priest and who can take away our sins, and we rejoice in that. And it's, you know, not only something that, you know, we, uh, or, the, or I should say that um, not only do we confess and we rejoice and we celebrate this first advent that Christ came once, but we also look forward to Christ coming again. It's something that we confess in our creeds and confessions that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And so we can say in, in one sense that Christ came in his first advent, that what we celebrated yesterday was so that Christ's second advent can be a blessing for us and not a curse. We see in, in, you know, in the Christmas story that Christ took on our very own flesh and blood, and then we continue to see that Christ lived a perfect life on our behalf, that he suffered in our place, and in doing so, he won our salvation. And so again, in this way, the first advent makes the second advent something that we don't uh, dread, something that we aren't terrified about, but something that we actually can long for, something that we can actually wait for. And it's, you know, again, this, this is the amazing news that we celebrate uh, at this Christmas season, that God has truly been faithful to his covenant, that God came not in wrath, you know, not to deal with sin as we wanted him to, or as, you know, as we sometimes uh, want him to do, but he came in mercy, that he has given us truly you know, the gift of Christmas. He has given us his son to take on flesh, to die for sins, to restore us to God, to give us new life. And this is the joy of Christmas that we celebrate. And yet, uh, just like in Malachi's day, we can find ourselves 
in seasons of waiting, even now. You know, we rejoice in Christ's first coming. Uh, We rejoice that he came, that he took on flesh, and yet we are still looking forward to his second coming. And as his second advent stands before us, you know, as uh, in many ways the things of this world still remain uh, unfulfilled, you know, both on a, on a you know, global level, but also on a personal level. There's things that we just long for and wait for. We can be tempted, just like they did in Malachi's day, we can be tempted to say things like, you know, what is God waiting for? You know, why hasn't he made all things right? Why, you know, where is this God of justice? Where is he? I don't see him. You know, if you've ever found yourself waiting for somebody, maybe, you know, you're going to meet someone at a coffee shop and, you know, five minutes goes by, 10 minutes goes by, 15 minutes goes by, you know, after a little while, at least for me, that voice in my head is, you know, starting to think, where is this person? They're, you know, they're so rude. They're so inconsiderate. You know, if they come to you and they say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I ran into so-and-so and we had a, a conversation, we were catching up, you'd probably think they were pretty impolite. But if they said, I'm so sorry, you know, I got a flat tire, my car broke down on the way here, you know, you'd probably think, you know, you'd probably uh, understand where they're coming from and you might even feel a little rude for having thought poorly of them. You know, in a similar way, we can think about, as we think about God, as we wait for him, as we see things in our lives that are unfulfilled, we can ask the question either, you know, verbally or just kind of implicitly, we can ask, you know, what's taking so long? Why aren't things going the way that they should be going? And we can often think that God's delay in coming is a sign of his lack of concern for us. That, you know, just as the, they did in Malachi's day, maybe he's just not willing or maybe he's not able to do what he said. That God is simply taking his sweet time, that he's simply, you know, twiddling his thumbs, that he's cold or indifferent to us and to our needs and concerns. But what scripture tells us time and time again is that God's delay is not evidence of his lack of concern or his indifference, but his delay is actually proof itself of his great love for us. We see in, uh, in 2 Peter, as you know, Peter's answering this very question, where is God? God seems to be delaying. Peter says this, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some of you count slowness, but he is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So scripture tells us that it is for your sake, it is for my sake, it is for the sake of all of God's elect that Christ delays his second coming. You know, that, that he might gather all of those whom he has chosen from before the foundations of the world, all of those for whom Christ came to die for. And scripture promises that Christ will not return until the full number of all those whom he has called have been redeemed. Now, you know, it's not wrong to pray that Jesus would come quickly, and scripture, in fact, encourages us to, to seek Christ's coming, to pray for it, to long for it, to uh, bring it about in those ways that we can by you know spreading the gospel by calling people to him and yet just you know just imagine if christ had answered the prayer of his church you know 20 years ago 50 years ago 100 years ago and so we see christ is not delaying but he is actually accomplishing his purposes of redemption even now and you know christmas and the incarnation it actually is a testament it is a testimony to that truth that christ will finish what he started. You know, Christ took on flesh. He became like us. He united us to himself by his spirit. And if he did all this to win our salvation and to ensure it, he will surely accomplish it. And this is why Paul can say in Philippians, in chapter 1, he says, I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
And so even now, just as in Malachi's day, God continues to show patience on impatient, wayward people. He continues not only to show patience to us, but actually to strengthen us, to encourage us, to prepare us for Christ's second return. And even in you know, 1 Peter chapter 1, as, as Peter is painting this picture of this future hope that we have that we're longing for in the midst of you know, uh, persecutions, in the midst of challenges, Peter uh, says this, he says, In this hope you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuine testedness of your faith, more precious than gold, uh, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so, you know, this morning, uh, you know, it, is, it is true that our Christian life is, in many ways, it's a life of, of waiting. It's this time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And, you know, even now, you know, at, at this time of Advent and Christmas, uh, this, this text and this season reminds us that our waiting is truly not in vain, that Christ will finish what he started. And this is why the author of Hebrews can say, you know, as he's talking about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, as he's saying that, you know, why it's better than the Old Testament sacrificial system and why it truly saves, as he concludes that thought, he says this, he says that Christ will return. He says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so this morning, may we be encouraged to eagerly await that Savior, the one who took on flesh, the one who has completely dealt with our sins, who's purified us, who cares for us even now and strengthens us, and the one who promises to come again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do rejoice in this season. We, Lord, we celebrate Christ's birth, his coming to us, his becoming flesh. Lord, we celebrate the arrival of our Savior, the one who has freed us from our sins, who's freed us from the power and the curse of our sins. And Lord, we do ask now, as we've been forgiven, as we've been saved, Lord, and as we look forward, I do ask that you would give us strength this day to keep our eyes fixed on him, the one who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And may we long for the day when he returns. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.